We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of female celebrities. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm the head writer at The Problem with Jon Stewart on Apple TV+. I'm a TV writer. I'm a filmmaker. Sometimes I'm in things. All the stuff. And this week, we are reading Reba McIntyre's memoir. Now, before we get into all things Reba, there's a couple of very exciting things that I have to tell you. First of all, starting with our next episode, we will be going completely independent. Now, don't worry. The podcast is going to keep dropping in your feeds just like normal two times a month. But if you want to support the podcast and our independent move, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Chelsea DeMontes. For $5 a month, you can help me pay for the podcast's new producer and editor. And as a thank you, you will get bonus episodes, more episodes a month. If you can support the higher tiers, you'll be added to my close friends list on Instagram where I drop all the shade and you'll get invited to a private monthly book club over Zoom where we discuss the books and the episodes. And sometimes I do book giveaways. Now, my second announcement is that we are doing our first ever live taping in front of an audience on February 5th at Caveat Theater in New York City. If you are in the area, tickets to the in-person live show are available now at caveat.nyc. And if you're not in the area, you can still join via a live stream. I'm so excited to see you in person and in the chat on the live stream. It's on February 5th. And if you're a patron of the podcast, you get free tickets. Now, let's dive into this week's episode. Reba's memoir was published in 1994, titled My Story. And the title 
You know, the title is much like the book, just a no frills, just a title that says like, this is just, you know, an old pair of jeans, not even my best. Uh, it really speaks to the tone of the book, but I will say we have in this book, the husbander story of all husbanders. So buckle up. Well, that was the last time I saw my mom and I left that rickety shack. The welfare people came and took the baby mama died and I ain't been back. But the wheels of fate started to turn and for me there was no way out. Wasn't very long till I knew exactly what my mama been talking about. I knew what I had to do when I made myself this solemn vow. I was gonna be a lady someday though I didn't know when or how. But I couldn't see spending the rest of my life with my head hung down in shame. You know I might have been born just plain white trash, but fancy was a my main. That was, of course, Reba's cover of the Bobby Gentry song, Fancy, which is one of my favorite songs of all time, and I dubbed it the official song of this podcast back in May. If I have one drink in me, I will cry when I hear it. It reminds me of my childhood, my mom, a best friend. Um, and I was hoping to fall in love with Reba even more through this book, but I'm not sure that it happened. And let's dive into that with our two guests. Please welcome Matt Belisai and Barry Finkel. You know them from the amazingly popular podcast, Unhappy Hour. Matt is a beloved comedian and author, thirst trap baking oh. connoisseur. <laughs> I know he's giving me a face. <laughs> um, and Barry works at Pineapple Media and she is now the head of operations sure at Pineapple Street Studios. And that's my hot exclusive <laughs> gossip. <laughs> Hi guys. Well, howdy. I'm a, I'm gonna talk in Reba's accent. Absolutely the not. Whole, the whole time. Shutting this down. <laughs> oh. Shutting this down right now. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Reba interviews on YouTube, and um, I don't. I still don't have the accent, right? But I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're. You know. You're in. It's sort of like you're in the state. Right. You're, right. You're, and, I, and I wouldn't say the state she was from, but you're in the state that she's. Yeah. Near. That that region. <laughs> that region. Um. Okay, so I introduced all my guests with the story of how we first met. Do either of you remember how we first met? Well, I know how we met because we met very professionally, which is that I was your producer on a podcast that we did with Spotify called Noisemakers. Um, yeah, we did a podcast together. And I just realized that some of the women's books I now cover were on that podcast. Like Padma came in yeah. and did... Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a six episode, just six episodes together, and it was um it was about workplace harassment. Super so if fun. you wanna laugh. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> Go listen in. Um and Matt, do you remember our first meeting? I do. Is there any way? You were I mean, I I think this was your breakout podcast role, which was guest complainer on my podcast. Yes. <laughs> we met in LA where we recorded an interview. Yeah, and I was so honored. But what I remember most from that encounter is that you guys were going to some cool LA party afterwards, and I made a bunch of aggressive jokes about how you were going to date Zac Efron. <laughs> and then, like, I got home later, and I was like, why did I do that? Like, why did I stay on that joke so much? I hope he still likes me. <laughs> I don't even remember what party we went to after I know. that. But, uh, I don't know. It, it was something where Zac Efron was going to be. So how are you not remembering Yeah, I, I did blow Zac Efron that <laughs> night. <laughs> Um, 
So you were right, actually. You were good. It was good wow. that you kind of stayed on that track. Wow, thank you so yeah. much. I'm so that that is also a celebrity book club exclusive. Uh, <laughs> take it to us weekly. Okay, so let's dive into this book to give people context. It's published in 1994. Mm -hmm. So that is after she's a huge, huge country music star, but it's before the show Reba, which uh, really catapulted her into like uh, a super, super stardom. And she has a ghostwriter, Tom Carter. And wow, was Tom asleep at the wheel? <laughs> like, it's like it's like she gave him the direction, like your writing style should be like the encyclopedia. Like just as- <laughs> yeah. The most dull- reading. It truly was just like, oh, this was the transcript of what she was saying. No notes. But there were so many notes. I have notes. Oh, yeah. It was It was like, you know, when you read a page and then you realize like you haven't been paying attention <laughs> and you have to go back. Mm -hmm. But then I, my brain would be like, I'm not going back. <laughs> no. Like you can't, you can't. make me go back. <laughs> yeah. It definitely reads just like a notebook dump. Like there's no, there's no real narrative. It's just kind of like, here's everything that I remember. Yeah. But also it's not even messy enough to be messy. And the first part, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second, makes it seem like we're going to get a lot of mess, but, but oh, it does not yeah. deliver. It, it, it delivers like later in between the lines, but yeah, the first half of the book is like <laughs> somehow he manages, he or she, whoever did most of the writing managed to make rodeos seem boring. <laughs> and like, I've been to a lot of rodeos growing up and like they're the most interesting, exciting, like hanging out. Like, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did yeah. it. Literally going into like the dollar down to like the cent of what she was paid for each like rodeo win or what her father made. Like, I don't need to know how many pennies he got for running around a barrel. And was there even a description of a horse? Describe the horses. There was one horse where um, her brother cut <gasps> the, cut the tail off of a horse. Yes. That I, uh, it was really sad. And she described, oh, yeah, oh. That is, I have it pulled up because that was one of my favorite quotes, which is. Oh my God. The cowboys had laughed at me because Pax, her brother, had suggested that he and I were shacking up. But they laughed harder when it was Pax's time to rope on his horse with a tail shorter than a cocker spaniel's. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. Also, Pax is not her brother. Pax was the man who was hitting on her. Apologies. Yeah. Yes. That, that her part brother was very is Pake. Pake was her brother. Pake. Pax was the guy yes. who, like, I guess sexually harassed her, but <laughs> was only like, um, yeah, Reba, did you book our hotel room together <laughs> in front of everyone else? And she was like, that's it. This is, you're dead to me. This is, you're dead to me, and so is your, your horse. Uh, your horse is getting mutilated. But that was the most uh, entertaining story of all the rodeo yeah. stuff. Even how much you make, which is so little in rodeos, they somehow made it boring. Um, okay, but wait. So let's start the book, because you're right. It starts like, it's hot. Mm -hmm, it's a hot mm -hmm. and spicy start. It is one of my favorite quotes of all time. <laughs> yes. Uh, you will If you listen to Brene Brown, you'll recognize this. It's from Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled. Credit belongs to the man who really was in the arena, his face marred by dust, sweat, and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs to come up short and short again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. It is the man who actually strives to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasm and the great devotion, who spends himself on a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end of triumph of great achievement, and who, at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those 
those cold, cruel souls who know neither victory nor defeat. <laughs> you like words? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, uh, and then, yeah. And then for 200 pages, it was one of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it picks up. The last 100 picks yeah. up, but like, what a start. Yeah. I do think, I mean, Okay, you obviously are the celebrity memoir expert. I will admit that I this is one of the first celebrity memoirs that I've actually read from start to finish. Okay. So yes, I, I was entertained. Oh, good. Okay, but yeah. yeah, that quote to me, I was just like, she is coming in so hot. Like this is definitely like she's just in defense mode the entire book. That's like there's yes. no other reason why this book was written besides to defend her and her timeline, which even in the book, and I'm sure we'll get into this, doesn't add up. Oh yeah, I I, I wrote that down too. I said it's less like my life story and more like here's my side of the story. Yeah. Like the whole point of writing the book is to prove to you that what you think happened didn't happen. And when you read the book, you're like, no, it totally happened. <laughs> By your own accounts, it happened. <laughs> there is a line in the beginning where she's like, I'm sure other people may remember this differently, but but this this is my side and how I how I remember things. And I was <laughs> like, stuff. okay, I, you're kind of throwing that in there as a defense, as preempting <laughs> people who are like, preempting. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's also this, really aggressive effort to appear like she's no frills, almost like like she's, well, I don't know what the right word is, but like she's not fancy enough to do something like write a book or become a famous singer. Yeah. But she did both of those things. But the whole time she's kind of like in writing sort of being like, I don't even, I don't even mean to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like that's like, you know, for a brand, you know, like you shouldn't be doing something as fancy as, you know, writing your own book or whatever. But it's like, but you did yeah. though. So there's like a disconnect. Or like owning a jet company. <laughs> she has oh. like, yeah. like she is a full on mogul but I feel like she doesn't want people to know she's a mogul. Yes, she even, there's one place in the book where she describes someone who advises performers on what to wear. And I was like, you mean a stylist? <laughs> Are you getting around the word stylist? It's such a weird, it's an intense effort. Like you can feel, you can feel the effort. Okay, so the book starts. It starts with the Inquirer printing a front page story of the headline, Reba Stole Our Husbands, which by the way, I found the cover of it. It's on my Instagram at Chelsea Devontis if you want to see it. And it's about how she stole both of her first two husbands from the marriages they were in. And both ex-wives are giving, you know, a sit down to the Inquirer to be like, she stole her husbands. And so the book is going to prove, she's basically like, the book is going to prove that I did not steal these husbands. And then you read it and you realize she did. She, she stole the husbands stole for sure. Both their husbands. <laughs> she stole both of them. And, and all you kind of understand is like what she was maybe thinking at the time, but it's, it's definitely proof of, of stealing. <laughs> yeah. Literally just 300 pages of how she stole two men. And one page about how she used to cut Bull testicles, you know, like it, there's a lot in here. <laughs> there is a, for being so boring at first. There is a lot in here. I, I realized there was a lot in here when I was going through to to make the little beat sheet. Um, okay, so first off, th then she's like, okay, this book is going to tell you that. Then she diverts. She goes into childhood, and this is Matt. This is why I am so mad at this book. She should be in jail for this. <laughs> she started two 
generations back. <laughs> I feel like I was you... more, even more than that. At some point, there was like a great, <laughs> great, great grandfather or something. I mean, it is it is one thing to have your childhood section. It is another thing to have every ancestor's childhood. So I was like, I can't believe you're making us do yes. this. We knew her great-grandma, her great-grandpa lived in a what they called a Dutch oven, which is, that's, he lived in like a hut, basically. Yeah. yeah. Never showered, right. never washed. And they the town called it his Dutch oven. And also, <laughs> I mean, like, this is again where it's like, you you had to go two generations back and then she says this on page 10. Oh, I know where, I know it's coming. Already the best oh line. Oh my God. When grandma's daddy lost, lost his slaves, lost, what a choice. Because President Lincoln had freed them after the Civil War, the family took their places in the fields, even though my great-grandfather didn't know how to farm himself and lost a leg when a sorghum masher fell on him and crushed it. So they didn't cotton to grandpa's ways. And then it kind of goes on to talk about like how the family went into the fields and how great they are. Yeah. And you're like, do you not realize you were just talking about slaves? Like the- <laughs> yeah. It's not about how great your family's not great for going into the fields and getting paid. Yeah. No. Like they're like what grit? <laughs> what what kind of, you know, work ethic they had that when when they no longer had yes. free slaves, <laughs> they, they went, went out to and work. Worked. And also like worked poorly it sounds. Like didn't yeah, really do like, a good it, job and like maybe didn't I, learn was, how to use the equipment properly. Yeah, and that's page 10. And they're like, oh no, there's 300 more pages. Yeah. Um, yeah, real bummer. And then here's what made me like extra angry is that then on page 27, she writes, I've been asked if I resented the way daddy whipped us kids. I don't. That's just the way he was. What I did resent were the times I had to work cattle with the men, then go in about 1130 a.m. to cook dinner, which is what we called noon meal. We cooked it. The men ate it. We cleaned up the mess, then returned to work with the men. What's wrong with this picture? Which is like, yeah, a good, a good feminist call uh-huh, out. Uh-huh. But paired with your slave story is like just OG white feminism. Uh-huh. Like we only noticed certain injustices that apply to us only. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> because that's kind of her whole brand too. Of like, there weren't a lot of female country singers, and she becomes this massive star when. There were only a, you know, a handful of women. And so this is kind of baked into the brand, which is, it is cool and important. It's, it's just like a, a bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't say I really expected. And I got to say, I, I don't have a ton of cultural or like childhood relationships with Reba. Like I, I, she's always loomed in the background. I've like known who she is. And then Matt and I became obsessed with Barb and Star and she's, an iconic role in that movie. I've like, Absolutely. I definitely like saw the show when I was younger stuff, but I, I will say like what you just set up is pretty much how I expected her to be. You know, like I was like, yeah, no, this, yeah. Uh, this tracks. Yeah. I think, I think I was expecting more. And I think this book is maybe lying to, mm. uh, almost fully lying to us. I actually yeah. think she's way cooler and better than this book presents her, especially in this moment in time. But yeah, the show Reba and like, you know, being a working class mom mentalets me, fancy. I, I, I'm way more of a Dolly fan because oh, yeah. I love like hyper femme mm-hmm. and Reba. Reba describes like Dolly would be in sparkles and I would be in a denim skirt and a, and a denim button up. And I was like, that's, yep, this is why I was never, <laughs> where our styles are not the same. But I did like, 
I don't know. I wanted so much more from this book. Yeah. I know. I mean, I do have... I'm not a country music person. I, I'm a Yankee. You know, I grew up in the North. Uh, so No, with that country accent? <laughs> I know. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> no, actually, surprisingly, my mom was such a huge Reba fan. So I did listen to, like, Reba was on in my childhood. And, like, we watched yeah. that show all the time. But, yeah, I definitely didn't expect... I mean, country music still is, like, so white. So, like... You know, right? Like, okay, right. she wasn't going to solve is, that in the nineties, right? It, it's also nineteen ninety four when, when like you can't pinpoint Reba because it's everyone. Right. It's still very much a bummer. Yeah, Barack yeah. Obama you know, has still, not solved racism yet. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, Barack Obama hadn't come in and fixed it all. Um, well, and then of course the Bachelor this past season when they fixed it yeah. again. Um, Thank you. Okay, so then I ha- I was actually texting with Barry, where I said, did she? Did I miss something? It's just all of a sudden she's just a singer. And and I, again, because it was kind of hard to read, but I, I went back. I finally found she she sings at a rodeo. Red Stiegel hears her, is like, you're going to be a star. I'm going to bring you to the label. Her mom drives her to Nashville. Reba, like the book, constantly in the book, is like, I don't want to be a singer. I don't want to do this. And her mom literally says, I'm living my dreams through you. Mm -hmm. But if you don't want to go, I guess that's fine. (laughs) And then she goes to Nashville. But then kind of after that, we never really revisit how she got on the radio. No, yeah. And also, I feel like a lot of times in these types of memoirs, it's like reflecting on that moment where it's like, yeah, you know what? My mom was really trying to live her dream through me. And that was kind of fucked up. And I struggled with it. But in this, it's like, she says after that, she's like, and that changed my mind. In a good, and like, it's like in a good way. And she was like, all right, yeah, I'll do it. This is amazing. And I'm like, oh, the like reflection part, it it, it feels like, oh, maybe a little bit lying to yourself about how you wanted to go through with this. Yes. And I, that's throughout yeah. the book where even if she's going to try and tell us like how bad her first husband was, she, it's really cloaked in like. No big deal, though. (laughs) Right. That's the part where it's like having a ghostwriter, who, by the way, is like barely a ghost. She calls him out every time she mentions his name, which is often. It's always my collaborator, Tom Carter. Um, Yeah, Tom Carter. Yeah. But he, yeah, it's like maybe because he is writing most of it and then she might come in a little bit and kind of offer a little bit of introspection, but it does feel like he's the one unearthing all of these things. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Your mom and dad were yeah. this way, and that's why you are this way. But I can't draw that connection for you. Yeah. And, uh, and neither can you. And, <laughs> yeah. and let's hope in 30 years, readers get it. Um, yeah, that's a great point. And then it gets to her first husband, Charlie. Oh, Charlie. I'm going to read the pages. Oh, boy. So this is, this is husband number one where she's going to have to prove she didn't steal him. Mm-hmm. And I, I do love, I love these paragraphs. Uh, so I'm going to read the three paragraphs when they meet. That night, after we put the horses up, we wound up celebrating at the Cow Palace, my favorite name of a bar ever, the Cow Palace, (laughs) a dance hall well-known for country music and dancing. We were drinking lots of beer and having a real good time when Paik, her brother, pulled Beth into the men's room just to be funny. As things played out, I'd been around Charlie all day. The house lights came on, the signal for everybody to leave because the place was closing. As I walked to Charlie's table, he pulled me onto his lap. We were all laughing, and I turned around and kissed him full on the mouth. 
I don't know why I did it. I was swept up by the excitement of the rodeo and the music and the beer. It was impulsive, but kissing Charlie just seems like the right thing to do at the time. Then, I'm just going to skip a little bit forward. A week later, I was back at Chalky practicing with Paik out at the roping pen. Reba, Paik said, Charlie left his wife. I was shocked, flabbergasted, astonished. Eventually, I would decide that he had left his wife for me, but I honestly had no such thoughts at the time. I hadn't been around Charlie enough to even think he'd be interested in me. I heard that he was unhappily married, but there had been no talk about him getting a divorce. Okay, so we'll just pause to say. So you cheated. (laughs) He was married. Then he left her a week after you kissing him, and you guys are going to get married. So that is so what saying happened. you're shot. Like, and it's honestly, she is the queen of shade. I will give her that. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, wow, mm-hmm. she's the queen of shade. She basically said, all it took was a kiss I didn't even care that much about, and he was mine. Also, <laughs> is she the best I didn't care that I kissed ever? Her. Like, I think, I so. think she might be. She must be. Yeah. I would not doubt it. No. Uh, and then right after that, she says, Sherry, Charlie's wife was a hardworking gal from a big family who was a good housewife. But I couldn't have lived with her myself. Sherry and I were as different as night and day. And you're like, there's that shade, baby. She's saying hardworking, you know, but she doesn't mean no. it. She means like, yeah, we were opposites. And and yeah, it's just like, so I guess you were surprised he left his wife, but like he did leave her for you and that is what happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of funny because Reba the sitcom, obviously this is all pre-sitcom, but Reba the yeah. sitcom, the like main conflict was between her and her husband's new wife. Like, and the, the whole thing is like they're opposites. They hate one another. So yeah. I mean, this is definitely like precursor. She, she mined yeah, this but hatred. Like, Definitely, but like flipped, flipped the the roles. In. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then she she even says like, you know, I don't even think I wanted to be with them, but then you know we are, and then we get married. And she says she wears a green summer suit, not a dress. Mm-hmm. I tried to find it. Oh God, if you have photos, send them to me <laughs> at Chelsea Devonches. Um, their honeymoon is at the Holiday Inn, and then she drops. She, she was like, it was, a, it was the Holiday Inn. It might not have even been for the honeymoon. They might have just been staying there on the road for something. Because then she says, I also had a hit single. What? Like, what? How? When? <laughs> like, when? when did your career take off? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then you're getting married in the middle of your career taking off. But it, yeah, it was very, it was odd. I couldn't follow what was happening. Yep. Nope. <sighs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. There was a lot of like... Her her performing with her siblings because yeah. they had like her sister and her brother like they were all part of the McIntyre gang or whatever they called themselves. So they she was performing. Yeah, she definitely was like, oh, we would perform at school. I'd perform at the rodeos. You're just kind of missing um, the effort. Yeah, like it it you don't you don't just sing at rodeos and then drive to Nashville with your mom and then it just kind of happens. Like there's a lot of. A lot happens, and all of that's not in the book. Um, Okay, so as she's going on, now there starts to be light nods to Charlie Mm. uh, and and it not going well. So, like, his his ex-wife telling her on the phone, uh, go have kids of your own when she's asking, like, when the kids are going to come over. Right. Um, You're right. That's all set up for Reba, the sitcom. And then one time when... She, you know, she's going to get in the truck to go with his sons to this thing. And he slams the door and he's like, 
where do you think you're going? And she's like, with you. And he's like, nope, and drives off. And she's like, my heart broke that day. Yeah. Yeah, it's this kind of slow build because it starts with her being like, okay, Charlie is maybe not a great guy in general. <laughs> yes. <laughs> including this anecdote where he literally throws a man through a plate glass door at a hotel. <laughs> Which she says is kind of hot and why she wants to be yeah. right. <laughs> Which And the reason why he did it was because that guy flipped her off. Like, that was, like, yeah. literally gave her but the bird. But she had dated him. Yeah, she had dated, she had him, dated him, and he him. gave her the bird at, like, a dance or something. And then Charlie was like, he did what? Threw him through a fucking plate of glass. Like, what? That is... And she was like, Charlie wasn't a good guy, but he did do that, which I thought was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I do love how she kind of always throws them, like, don't worry, we paid for the, we paid for the replacement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, that was, that's not really okay. the concern here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean... There's really nothing in there of why you would ever like Charlie. And obviously it's written from after the divorce, but like there's no like why you'd even be with no. him in there. The most tragic thing is that he sells her favorite horse, which I mean, yeah, that's you know, I, I, I immediately I Whose was like, name is Legs. That's not the horse's name is Legs. <laughs> yeah. Which is also my country music name. Just legs. Oh my god. Legs. But I'm like, yeah, that is that's a pretty big red flag. If someone did that to me, if my yeah. favorite horse behind your back and was just like, man, it was a good deal. It was like it was like bartering. I was like, yeah, I'll trade you this horse for that tractor. Yeah. And it's like, what? and she's already making money, so he doesn't need to. Like, they're not hard up in any way. She's making a ton of money for them at this yeah. point, and he gives the horse away. Yeah, but it's also said it's like I couldn't understand why he sold my beloved legs and didn't even think about my feelings. And you're like, it's it's little underplay. You're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah where's like, legs? <laughs> Leave him. What are we doing? Justice yes. for legs. Ah, <laughs> uh, and then I d I also loved this paragraph of the book. So she's. Also, you know, slowly becoming a star. She said, we were still living in the Chalky Shack when I had my first top 10 record. Here's how it happened. Earlier in the year, I'd gone to an estate sale and wound up buying a deep freeze that was full of blackberries. <laughs> yeah. Full stop. So, I mean, I would go to an estate sale looking for like refurbished seashell earrings, but I didn't know you could buy uh, somebody's freezer. It just it never occurred to me you could buy a freezer at an estate sale. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And get the contents of it. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, the lady selling it had gathered and frozen them from that spring, which makes you think, okay, so she's alive? I don't know. So one afternoon, I was setting out to copy one of Grandma Smith's famous blackberry cobblers when the mm. phone rang. It was Jerry Kennedy. Oh, I feel like, Matt, maybe you should read that <laughs> in the accent because I... <laughs> I feel oh like God, I didn't do put that. Put a right. full on radio drama. <laughs> Wait, what, what page? page is do you this? know what page? Okay, page page one oh three. Um, I'll I'll play uh, <laughs> uh, Barry. You play Jerry Kennedy, okay. and Matt, you play Reba. Okay. Hey Reba, what are you doing? Hey Jerry, I'm cooking. What do you know? Oh, that was wow. good. <laughs> okay, that was good. That's like that's. It's only two lines, but it's wow. worth it. <laughs> Where's our and, Oscar? And scene. <laughs> um. That she was basically like, uh, I, I can't talk. I'm cooking. And she hangs up the phone. Then she calls him back. And he's like, you have a hit song. And she's like, isn't that nice? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. And she's just, she was just like, the pie was more, the cobbler was more important. And as a baker, I can tell you that a cobbler is literally <laughs> the easiest thing. Um, <laughs> I also, it's not a baker. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you sure you know. It's literally just fruit with like dough on the top. It's not hard. <laughs> you just plop dough on top of it. And it goes in the oven for like two hours. 
I will say, I, I've given Matt shit about this before, but he's so hot and he also bakes, which is one of my pet peeves. I really hate when like really hot people also are really into baking because then it's just their hot body next to baked goods. And I'm like, this can't, something's wrong with, with karma. Um, oh, stop. But I'm sorry, it's true. Um, but yeah, great baker. And I forgot. Yeah, so the cobbler, she probably didn't have to hang up that phone. If Yeah, like I feel like you can like overbake a cobbler by like a half hour and it'll be fine. But that's also like what it, what one of those things in the book where you feel the book try yes. to be like, I didn't care about success. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and there, I also just want to point out one of my favorite quotes was another description of the Chalky Shack, which is the same place where that story takes place, which is, I think the walls remained standing because the mice were holding hands. <laughs> that's how, oh, that's, that's right. how cheap it was. <laughs> and like how, which is also funny because she, she has this whole, paragraph where she's talking about how like celebrities love to get together and like outpour each other like talk about who had it hardest growing up and she's like I would never do that and I'm like you spent the first 200 pages of this book doing that like fully oh yeah although I will say I took that the other way by the way the person who told her that is Burt Reynolds Uh (laughs) Burt Reynolds is like celebrity he said successful people love to do nothing more than talk about how much they struggled before and try and outdo mm. each other i wrote in the book that's true yeah. in all caps <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i've participated in many yeah. of those <laughs> but she says the classic line is always like i grew up in a house without running water and i think that line is in her own book like four times yeah that's very in the true. Chalky That's shack. very true. Yeah. In the Chalky Shack. <laughs> which I will say, credit to Reba, because she does live in the Chalky Shack while having a top 10 album. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other piece of the book where I was like, whoa, that is wild, is that her brother, Pake, would drive up to gigs because he's in her band when she's performing. Um, and he would drive up to gigs with a horse trailer hooked up to the back of his truck mm-hmm. because they really were doing rodeos and performing. Yeah. I will say, though, what is the Pake drama? Because they are in a group. Then suddenly they're kind of not in a group and it's just Reba. Then he doesn't come to either of her weddings. Yep. And, and then it's, this is how Pake exits the book. She said, the next thing I know, I got a call from Preacher saying Pake had quit. That's it. Then she goes into amazingly, blah, 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 and goes into a different story. And I'm like, there's some Pake drama hiding, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They wanted to, they wanted to split uh, the the earnings evenly, and she was like, I didn't think that was fair because I was the headliner. Like, I was the reason people were coming. Something to that effect. And so she was like, after that, we just decided it was best for me to be on my own. I... I feel terrible because normally I am so precise with these books. And I, I mean, the first 200 pages, like I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, something happened to me. And I, I was also really, we were filming an episode um, that I can't tell you. It was a really hard episode, but like this book was like, it was like uh, eating a hammer. <laughs> I should also say I'm a chronic procrastinator. So I read this entire book since yesterday or the day before <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> That's why all of these facts are fresh in my head and they'll all go away tomorrow. Oh, no, good, good. I'm so glad you have that. Yeah, because there's just not enough about, there's just not enough though. There's not enough in there. It's just like, oh, and then Pake left. You're like, I'm sure there's more to that. Yeah. Because they're all still like trying in some way. All of her siblings are still, she says, 
musicians. They're all in the industry in some way. Yeah. Like her sister is a gospel singer. Her brother, I think, is still like still plays instruments. Yeah. I found the page. It's literally it's a page and a half and that is it. But it starts with it's on page 72 for those who are interested. But what about the other singing McIntyres? I've often been asked the obvious and fair question. Do Paik, Susie, and I have sibling rivalry? The answer is yes, but it hasn't spoiled our relationship. Well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> kind of feels uh, like an ass. Kind of sounds like he didn't come to both of your weddings and quit your band. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Paik got a deal. See, see, this is what's crazy. This is the page I, I that my brain um, deleted. <laughs> In the middle of the 1980s, Pate got a deal of his own on RC Records and toured for a while as my opening act, doing 15 minutes solo, then falling in with the band behind me. He recently said it was the best deal he ever had in music business. You're like, that's not good. No. That's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I can't. And then he just quits. And, and Susie's a singer still. Huh. Yeah, right. it sounded like the implication of that was like, he realizes retrospectively that that was his peak. Yeah. Like he should have been more grateful at the time that he uh, had that opportunity with her. She had a lot of people riding her coattails. She really yeah. did. She really did. Um, including Charlie. So Charlie, uh, he Charlie's a rodeo guy. He's her manager. And it starts slipping out in the book where I literally wrote, is he her manager? Yeah. And it kind of keeps coming in more and more. And and then once she says like, you know, he's kind of acting like a manager. He was definitely her manager. He would do the bookings. He would spend the money. He would decide the budget. Uh, but he wouldn't go on the road. So they would be calling him saying, why did you book us here? And he's like, go do the show. Um, bring me that money or whatever it was. That's not a quote. That's just my impression. Um, yeah. And then... Okay, so, so you're kind of like, okay, Charlie's managing this. She's on the road, and uh, and it's not going well. And then my favorites, <laughs> okay, I have a lot of favorites in this book. And then one of the things I loved is that one day, this guy, Narvel, his name is Narvel, he had joined the band to play in the band a while back. And he'd been in the band, and one day, Narvel goes to Charlie, not Reba. He goes to Charlie and he says, someone needs to be in charge of this whole touring thing because Preacher's leaving, someone should be in charge and it should be me. And Charlie says, okay. Then he goes to Reba and he's like, I, I went to Charlie. We've decided I'm in charge now. And it was a very much like, I'm the captain now moment. Mm -hmm. Like I'm the husband now <laughs> because Narvel is going to become her next husband. And like, this is the moment where they transfer power <laughs> over Reba. Yeah. They just fully go over her. They just fully be like, hey, I'm going to run her now. And he's like, all right, I'm bored. You do it. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like I learned a little bit about the music industry that I didn't really know, which is like, I don't know. She has like 10 managers at any given moment. Like she, and she labels them all repeatedly. So it's like a career manager and then like a, ro like a tour manager, yeah. like a band yes. manager. So it does feel yes. like, yeah, they all were sort of in these roles at a, at a certain point, And it was just like, who is in charge? And also, I would argue, right. maybe none of those managers should be your husband. <laughs> yeah. Uh, definitely none of them. Um, yeah. And, and Narvel, at this point, is becoming her road manager. Yeah. And taking that gig away from Charlie. Mm -hmm. And then this was the funniest page. She said, 
By then, Charlie and I knew Narvel very well and trusted him immensely. Even the story of his marriage was evidence of his integrity. When Narvel was 14 years old, he dated a girl named Lisa Ritter, full name, off and on up until the time he got his driver's <laughs> license at 16. And then he started dating other girls. But one night, she and Narvel went to a Merrill Haggard concert. A few weeks later, after the concert, Lisa called to tell him she was pregnant. So... With the persuasion of his mother, Narvel chose to quit music, school, and his apprenticeship at a print shop and marry her. Narvel's dad and Lisa's mom were not for the wedding. Gloria, Narvel's mom, knew the marriage was the right thing to do. Okay, so, I mean, she is just threw Lisa under the bus, ran her over once, backed over her, went right back <laughs> over her body. Because, again, she's now married to Narvel. Yep. So this is her being like, he didn't even want to be <laughs> His mom made He him. did a goddamn favor to you. Yeah. To you. Yeah. I also, now that we have fully said that Narvel is her husband later on in the book and is also her manager now, he's also, it seems like he is the one who wanted this book to happen. And I- Oh, yeah. And she said in the beginning, yeah. Narvel talked to me. Yeah. Okay. And it feels like a lot of this is not just- her like publicist wanting to shape her image. It is him wanting to shape her image of her and of himself because I'm like, oh, like that paragraph in and of itself, you know, he's read every single page. You know, he was probably there oh. for all the interviews. He might be the ghostwriter and Tom Carter <laughs> is just a fake right. name. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I have found the villain. I mean, there have been some people I hated in these books. I think Narvel is maybe my number one villain at this point. And, <laughs> And here's what a great villain here, name too. Yeah, really. <laughs> I know, truly. Um, so this was the other craziest part. Narvel was in insurance. Yeah. <laughs> and Reba's so into it. This is one of many times in the book where she said, "That's how Narvel became one of the top salesmen at Prudential Insurance." To other players, working for me was a job. For Narvel, it seemed to be a career. He was always coming up with ideas to improve the show or our travel conditions. The drive and enthusiasm are what made Narvel the best partner I've ever had. But throughout the book, she's about to be like, and he was so great. From his time at Prudential Insurance, <laughs> where he was one of the top salesmen. I'm like, stop. Talk, you're making him sound worse. My other favorite, which makes this an at least third reference to Prudential, was once again, I was turning to a person who didn't have any formal management experience, although he has told me often how much he learned at Prudential about managing and motivating people. <laughs> no, he's just a goddamn salesman <laughs> who's good at selling himself. That is not management. Yes. As the head of operations of Pineapple Street Studios, I can tell you that is not management. No, no. That's just like aggressive persuasion towards something no one wants, which is insurance, <laughs> which is in this case, you being a manager. You sold people on you being a manager. Um, the, uh, here's another time I marked where he said it. Um, she, so Narvel is talking in the book now. This is a quote. Um, uh, I was a diplomat. I got good at being a player between Reba Charlie and Bill Carter. 
The training at Prudential <laughs> I had years earlier <laughs> helped a lot because it taught me to be a people person. I'm like, Prudential Insurance is not what you, it's not how you become a music man. Are they a sponsor of this book? Did they pay to have this book made? And it's like, it's not like this was at the beginning of her career. Like at this point, she's <laughs> had multiple hits. And she's like a, t- a touring. Headlining act. Yeah. Country music star. Award winner. Yeah. It's not like she's <laughs> like, woman. fuck it. I'll give this insurance salesman a shot. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, you're handing the reins of a fully, like a truck that is going down the highway. Full speed. You're handing it to the salesman. Yes, 100%. And also, uh, you you have, to, like, I'm sure her entire record label was like, please <laughs> don't do this. And the behind the scenes, I'm sure she's like, listen, I'm marrying him. And they're like, all right, I guess I guess this dude's the fucking manager now <laughs> because they're married yeah. or they're going to get married. Okay, but we're not there yet. Okay, so we have to take a quick tangent because, again, we spoke about this before we started recording, but the, the book timeline is... It's all over the place. I believe it's on purpose. Yes. I think she's trying to, you're, she's defending herself of a timeline that does not help her defense. And so she's constantly taking tangents. So you kind of like lose track of where you are. Absolutely. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is, maybe this is completely irrelevant, but it was, it was just a detail that I literally underlined and was like, okay, why do we have to know this? There's an entire page where she just describes the food that they were served at at various venues <laughs> and like how they would make turkey sandwiches with like bread and turkey. And, and yeah. that almost feels like another ploy to like distract us. Or I'm like, why? Yes. Why are we why are you telling us this? <laughs> well, and that's the thing too, where like she won't describe kind of what it took to get her first hit song, but she will describe just the down-home turkey sandwich. Yeah, yep. exactly you the know. meal that Conway Twitty served her. <laughs> the amount of names in this book, too, are, like, absurd. I'm like, we don't actually need everyone's yeah. proper nouns here. We got the guest list for every event that she's ever <laughs> attended. Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults how I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes, some are motherfucking villains. 
But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay. So this was the tangent of uh, we're in the middle of switching from Charlie to Narvel, and we go on a tangent about how the CMAs yes. are are really (laughs) poorly organized. And by this, she means like the award show happens, which is award shows take uh, hours of time. You you get ready all day. It's an exhausting event, but also the best, blah, blah. And then they would set up all these interviews after the event. And if you were nominated or won, you would then go to hours of interviews. And Reba, she's really trying uh, for some reason. I mean, she goes in so hard on this where she's like, it was not set up for a performer to do their best. It wasn't well organized. And what she's actually describing is one year she won and she walked out of the event and they said, you have interviews to do. And she said, absolutely fucking not go fuck yourself. It's like real diva moment. I love it. But it's in the book. It's like, and then what do you know? They reorganized yeah. the schedule <laughs> to be more apt for a performer's energy. And I am with her. I'm like, good for you. But it was so funny. She presents it like it's her I have a dream speech. <laughs> Or she is like, I am, I'm changing history, actually, is what's happening. <laughs> I'm restructuring they the CMAs. Must, they must res- respect their performance. And by the way, the, yeah, the main beef is that in, rather than taking a limousine to a hotel to do interviews after she won an award, she wanted to just do it backstage. And they, were, and they were like, no, this is how we've always done it. And she was like, this is inhumane. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. this is inhumane working conditions. Right. (laughs) Call PETA. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, I will say, like, having, you know, you go to those events, she's right. She's right. It it sucks, but also, why is it in this book next to the turkey sandwich? And I feel like in a lot of other, like, to your point of this being a diva moment, in a lot of other celebrity memoirs, I feel like it would be like, this is my diva moment, like, fuck everyone. But instead, she was like, this is a teachable lesson. And actually, there were, like, very real reasons why I did this. Like, defense, defense, yes. defense. And it's like, well, we yes, also exactly. would have just, like, soaked up a sweet diva moment, girl. Like, we love that. Uh, you've earned yeah. it. You've earned be it. Be a diva. Yes. Be a diva. And so then the next tangent is... She's talking about songs and picking them. And she said she didn't want to sing this song because its theme, adultery, made her leery about releasing it. Mm-hmm. And then the next <laughs> four pages are about adultery. Because <laughs> she's like, I don't like to, which also I should say that like, I mostly listen to singer songwriters and I kind of forgot that there are singers whose entire careers are not based off of their own music. And she's truly shopping around, which like no shade about this, like, but she's shopping around for songs. And so she's like, I only sing songs that I connect to. And at that point in her career, I'm pretty sure she even said like, I only sing songs that I connect to and that feel like they really happened for me. But adultery wasn't one of those things, so I absolutely could not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then it's like, she oh. she does sing that song. Yeah. She's like, but then, you know, I thought maybe I should take it on. <laughs> maybe other people will but, relate. Yeah, she's like, this is just a universal truth that everybody can identify with. Yeah, and also I have to say, in my head, for some reason, I thought Reba wrote some too too much of her music, but she really is just a vocalist. Which, she's a singer. 
actually gave me way more. You would think it would go the other way where you respect someone who writes their own music, which I do fully, but, but she doesn't stereotypically fit what a quote unquote girl singer, which is what it was called in her time was supposed to look like. And so it really is like her voice, not her songwriting, certainly not her style. She's not flashy. Like, it's just her voice, which is cool. Yeah, no, totally. She also makes a point to try. It's not just the voice part of it. It's like the the taste. Like, she, she describes in detail how it's like her skill and talent was actually choosing which songs that other people wrote that she would sing. Like, she's a solid curator. Like making a mixtape. Yeah. Like, yeah. your talent she's, is making a mixtape, like, which is not a It's talent. a karaoke list. An yeah. amazing karaoke playlist is her discography. That is, you're so right. Also, this is this is maybe why she got on my nerves because another pet peeve of mine, people, is when they really pride themselves in their taste in music. And I just want to shout, you didn't create any of it. <laughs> like, you are not a special person for enjoying other people's good art. <laughs> You can be special for other reasons, but it's not for like liking someone else. <laughs> right. And she even does the thing where she recounts a conversation where she passes on a song that then like Garth Brooks goes on and makes a big hit. And she is like, Narvel, I said no to that song. <laughs> like she brags about how she passed on it. <laughs> I know. You're so right. You're so right. Okay. So then at this point in the book, Charlie is making his official exit. With things like he thought he could make things better with her by buying a single flower, which again, I loved, where she's like, that ain't gonna fucking do it. (laughs) Um, But then there's this like long thing of how she got him like a a shaving kit. Yeah. But then she was like, he kind of threatened her with the shaving kit. And then she said, but then she's like, but don't worry, nothing violent happened, but it do- it sounds like something violent is happening. And then she said, the shaving kit was a symbol of all that had become unbearable to me about our marriage. I wrote, what is this metaphor? Because it sounds like it's a symbol of it because he threatened you with a knife yeah. that you yeah. used to shave a face with. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not really a symbol of it. You're saying, no. I think, is she saying that he threatened her with a shaving kit? It was so weird. Also seems like she really doesn't like his kids. <laughs> like throughout the no, book. No. It's like barely mentions them. And when she does, it's rarely something nice. Yeah. You're right. You're right. And you know what? I will I will say, I'm because I'm trying to think of why this is here. Perhaps that we are still in the 90s where a woman being abused makes her mm-hmm. weak and shitty and you can't listen to her music anymore. Yeah. And she's trying to walk us through that, which I well then then I'll give her the shaving kit metaphor. All right back. Yeah. Give it to her back just in case. But I, yeah, just in case. Okay. So at this point she has been, um, she has been awarded female vocalist of the year four years in a row. She's on top of her game. When we come back, Charles is out. Narvel's going to come in. We're going to take a short break. Okay, welcome back. So, Reba, this little dance—I mean, she's gonna skim. She's—it's like a—it's like watching like playing Frogger. We're gonna <laughs> jump, and we're leap, we're gonna go back, we're gonna go back, and like as we're gonna get through how she divorced Charlie and married Narvel. 
I can't wait. This was the best part. This was the most amount of question marks and timeline. Like, I feel like I was like doing a whole entire map with like red string trying to figure this shit out. (laughs) Yes. So first off, she at one time had said, Charlie, if I ever asked for a divorce, what would you do? He said, I'd ask for 10% of you for the rest of your life. What a dick. Yeah. Again, this man has not, he didn't even go on the road with them, whatever. And he turns into... Um, a total shithead of the kind I know well, where when she files for divorce, he takes things like the toiletry soaps Mm. that she saved from the hotel Mm -hmm. um, of just, he just takes everything, withdraws their money from the bank, like all that stuff. And then Narvel starts popping up more. In the middle of this, there's like an accountant who's mad at her and they're having like- So much detail about the accountant who's mad at her. So much detail about the accountant she turns to Narvel to be her manager. She's like, I can't believe I'm doing this because he's, you know, not a manager and he was in the band and the insurance. And she says, a real go-getter, Narvel was always coming up with the ways to make the show better. So here are the things she lists as Narvel's good ideas. Adding more stage lighting Mm -hmm. and risers for the the band. band. She acts as if he invented risers for the stage. Yes, because earlier there's a whole page about how Narvel had this idea and no one believed in him, but he pushed for the risers and like, wow, did it make a change? You're like, risers? <laughs> what you stand on at in your school choir? <laughs> She's like, they would cost this much. Um, I was worried that they would charge the, the band in order for them to stand on the risers. As in like, yeah. her organization would charge her own band members to stand on the risers. <laughs> that was that was what was it, at stake, potentially. At stake here. Yeah, it's so, and again, very famous woman at this point. And these are the impressive ideas. So then he becomes her manager. And she says, Throughout the unhappy unraveling of my marriage and into my early unsure days of being alone, Narvel was my anchor, always there to say, don't worry about it. I'll take care of this. Which is the job of a manager. (laughs) He's doing the job you pay him to do. And because he did that, she says, the dependability and devotion from him perhaps inevitably sparked some response in me. When you like and admire somebody like that, love starts growing there too. So it's literally like, yes, because he took care of you like a manager does, you fell in love with him. Yeah. Yeah. We fell in love with your manager. And this is where Narvel is my villain because, <laughs> because this, is, this is when you really think about this story. An insurance salesman somehow got to play in Reba's band marries the biggest country music star of all time and with no experience becomes her manager. And you're like, okay, well, they're married for a long time. The big spoiler alert is that they get divorced in 2016. He remarries a younger blonde, uh, someone who was like their friend from town. I I looked her up on Instagram. She's just a normal woman. Don't go find her. (laughs) She's just a lady. She's just a lady. But she is that like young, hot blonde woman. And Narvel basically gets millions and millions from becoming her manager and then leaves her for a younger woman at the end of the story. And I was like, you little genius. And in the fucking middle of this, he turns his son also into a manager who manages Kelly Clarkson. His sons, uh, they, they get married. His son marries Kelly Clarkson. Uh, it's Narvel Blackstone and I forget Kelly Clarkson's husband's name is something Blackstone. 
They're both husbanders. It's a father-son husbander duo. I'm so, I'm so mad at this. So his son, he, he teaches his son how to be a husbander. His son husbanders Kelly Clarkson. They, in quarantine, spent one month together, and Kelly Clarkson herself was like, yeah, we realized in quarantine, we'd never spent time together, actually, so we divorced immediately. And then he did things like try and break their prenup to get more money and alimony from her. He tried to uh, squat in Kelly Clarkson's mansion, was like, I live here now, and Kelly's like, you don't. (laughs) Um, And they have this, like, very messy divorce. And so when I think of Reba's husband and then Kelly Clarkson's husband, I get real— Come on, husband, your duo? No, it's the, it's a nightmare. Yeah, I know I'm screaming about this, but wow, no, it is. Uh, I'm like, I'm speechless because of how upsetting and gross it is. Yeah, yes. And Reba and Kelly and- are now like veteran friends. Yeah, like they're a- yeah, they're bonded <laughs> from this trauma yeah. from the Blackstones. Yeah. Um, and then there's another story in this book where. This is what was so crazy to me, where Reba says she's listening to these songs to choose a song, and she hears the voice of Linda Davis. And she says, oh, my God, like, this is the most incredible voice I've ever heard. And she said so much so that that Narvel took her on as his, you know, second client. And she debuts a duet with Linda. And all of a sudden, like, none of us know who Linda Davis nope. is. None of us know who Linda Davis is, which means— Narvel, manager of the fucking year with the biggest client in music history with a voice Reba's in love with, couldn't make a successful career for Linda Davis. He's just mooching for 25 years. He's just a prudential insurance salesman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. There was a line where she says basically like, with Narvel in charge, I could finally like start making my own decisions in my career. And it's like, those things don't go together. (laughs) No. So he's not in charge or he is. (laughs) And it's just like from one husband manager to another. Yeah. And and then she says, okay, so she says like, you know, they start growing closer. And then she said, uh, when we finally did connect, it was with a kiss, nothing more. And it was totally unplanned. And then she said, we were on tour. As Narvel recalls, I think we kissed a couple times. And everybody came back on the bus and everything went back to the way it was before. And it's literally another like, it was just one kiss. And- what she doesn't say is that she's, she actually hasn't divorced Charlie yet, no. and he's still married. They cheated. Yeah. Like, later, like, literally two paragraphs down from what you just read, she says, at the time, I was in the process of my drawn-out breakup with Charlie, a few months away from actually filing for divorce. She hadn't even filed for divorce yet. I yeah. know that divorce takes a long time to go from, like, when you file to when you actually settle, they hadn't even filed yet. Yes. Oh, yeah. And she's she's trying. She's and she has another paragraph where she said, "Neither of us left our marriages for each other." But literally, like five months after he leaves Lisa, they have bought a house. <laughs> Wait, this is. It's just impossible. This is my favorite part because she also okay. She says on page two hundred, Narvel wound up in divorce court himself four months later in October nineteen eighty seven. Okay. October 1987. I'm not good at math. But then, next page, it took a full nine months before Narvel and I decided that we truly wanted to be a couple. Okay? October 1987, nine months. And then the next page, but our romance did take off. And in May 1988, we bought a condominium together. That is six months from October 1987. Yeah, okay. October 1987 
is is July 1988, right? Nine months from that. Okay, October 1987. Uh October to. November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June, July. Yeah, right. That's so July 19. And when do they buy the condominium? May. May 1988. Yeah, May. May. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. That's six. She said it was nine. And then she tells you they've bought a house six months later, which means, and if you're buying the house, you're fully yeah, in love. Yeah. <laughs> you're in a serious relationship. Wait, so how do they get the math? I want to know this. How does she get the math wrong in her own defense book? Does she think we're not going to count the months like I just did because we don't know math? <laughs> this is like the one detail that you're going to want to get right. Yeah. Yes. It's the numbers. This is the whole timeline detail. And, oh, to make it worse at their— So wait, oh, 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 okay. I think I just have something else in the timeline. So then she says— their first Christmas together. Yep. So I wonder if it was that, <gasps> if that December after October or the next No, it would December. have to be because it's their first Christmas together in the condo. And they bought the condo in, the condo. in May 1988. So it would have been December 1988. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's one year from, so it's exactly one year from him filing for divorce from less Lisa. Less than a year. He, yeah. Less than a year. You're right. He gives Reba a box. She opens it. There's another box. And she opens that box. She's like, oh, Narva, what's going on here? She opens up another box until she's opening box after box until there's a tiny little box. And when she opens it, it's an engagement ring. And I said, Narval, that's barely even creative. <laughs> <laughs> but she says, what a romantic way to propose. When that man wants to I'm- do a production, he does a production. <laughs> <laughs> It is the equivalent of the man who thought of risers. <laughs> that is true. You know, right. that's your level From of the mind that, that brought you me. risers comes <laughs> the most romantic proposal known to country music. <laughs> <laughs> also, earlier on page 200, she says when she filed for divorce, she writes, Narvel was dumbfounded. You're like, you guys, no one believes this. <laughs> Yeah, she was like, I tried to keep it from him. I didn't even tell him that our marriage was in trouble. It's like, well, it's pretty fucking obvious. You're throwing shaving kits at one another on the tour bus. I think they know. (laughs) Also, like, he negotiated changing over management from that. Like, we all see it. Charles saw it coming too, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Although I will say, this is Reba Reba McIntyre, two for two. One kiss is all it takes, ladies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Best kisser in town. Best kisser in town. I'll tell you that. So then, God, again, again, so, so famous. She says, I love the idea of getting married in Lake Tahoe, but I wonder how we would get both of our families to Lake Tahoe. (laughs) Then. (laughs) Oh, my God, this part, I love it. I got a brainstorm. I said, oh, oh, here's your moment, Matt. You're going to have to read it again. Page 210. She said, uh, she said, then I, I, I got a brainstorm. Yeah. Let's figure out how many American Airlines Advantage miles we'll have between us. <laughs> and they use their air miles yeah. to fly both their families to Lake Tahoe because apparently she's not super rich and famous, even though, even she, though she has someone hired who runs her fan club. That's how rich she is. She's like, like four-time country music award winner. Uh, it's... Yeah, and and then Caesars, the casino in Tahoe, pays for the food for their wedding reception. And I will say this this makes this the second 
celebrity-sponsored wedding by Caesar's Palace. They also did Celine Dion's Hell wedding. Yeah. Caesar's Palace paid for all of it. In her book, she's like, Caesar's Palace paid for that wedding. They love a wedding. <laughs> and they paid for Reba's food, and they get married on this boat in Lake Tahoe within a year of leaving their marriages. Yep. Well, she also says that we they never— she was like, we never talked about getting married. I didn't even know if I wanted to get married again. And I'm like, and she was like, I didn't think he did either. I'm like, well, clearly he just wants to trap you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Also, you didn't think about it. What? For the first month of dating? Because then the, the next month you got married. <laughs> yeah. I'm also just rereading the part. Like, she did two shows on the day of her wedding. Oh, that's oh, right. Yeah. She went and performed. Yeah. Like, tw- twice. And it's just. I actually kind of like that. I'm not going to lie. I, I guess it. it's, you know, girl boss, everything, you know, <laughs> gatekeep, girl boss, whatever, whatever the Listen, phrase Listen, Narvel's like, get your ass up on that stage. I own half <laughs> It's like you can't take one day off for your wedding. You're doing two shows, a double feature in one. <laughs> a double feature? You're right. That is a lot. She makes it well, like they have okay. one, they have one show, then she has her reception, and then she does another show all in the same night. It's just insane. Yeah, that's something for therapy for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's something for a session. <laughs> um, then in the, so in all of this, in the middle of like how she's leaving Charlie again with Narvel and her wedding, there's this paragraph. She takes a role in a movie and she says, but the movie itself had a great story and the cast was great. Besides Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, it featured Finn Carter and Michael Gross, who played my husband. As Richard Schickel said in Time Magazine, it's in the tradition of the 50s horror movies. Tremors is bound to become a classic. <laughs> Not a bad way to launch a movie career, dot, dot, dot. I said, what is Tremors? <laughs> I have never I heard of Tremors. I need to see it, though. I wanted to see it before we recorded, but I didn't have a chance, and I absolutely need to see it. <laughs> it was a movie of, of my childhood, I remember. <gasps> really? It, it, I, I, I know it's a movie. It's just, is it... The movie, is it what she wrote it was? No, she makes it seem like this is on, like, the AFI 100. <laughs> like, this is Casablanca. Yeah. yeah, it's right up there with, what's it called? It's, it's Casablanca, the one about the guy who dies. Gone with the wind. Sure. That's um, right. You're like, Tremors. No, um, but I use it. Okay, I mean, whatever. it's like, a, it's kind of campy from what I remember. I mean, it's about giant worms. <laughs> Right. And people, right. Okay, that's kind of all I needed to hear. <laughs> giant worms under the ground, and if you walk on the ground, they hear you and they come and attack you. But it's like uh, kind of a comedy. <laughs> it's not really. Yeah. It's not like I'm sure it was accidental. <laughs> um. Okay. Okay. Well. Anyways, it's just I love not a bad way to start a movie career. Like okay. Um. Now you might think this book doesn't have a psychic moment, but. Da, 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 da. It has a psychic moment. It sure does. It's Narvel's mother telling the story about his great-great-grandfather, Isaac Shelby Hurst, who, um, to prove he could afford his own funeral, he went to the bank and withdrew all of his money and bought himself a casket. He hid the money that was left over, but he told no one where. Uh, as he lay dying, he called for Marion, his son, promising to tell him where he hid in the money. But when Marion arrived, Isaac announced that he had changed his mind. He then went to sleep, eased into a coma, and died. The family searched everywhere for that money, even inside the lining of the casket without success. So, Mama Blackstock, seeking advice from fortune tellers was her thing. 
One told her that the money was buried near a body of water, and the whole town set about combing five bodies of water, a creek, a pond, and three wells on the 200-acre farm. Nothing. A second fortune teller told her that the money was hidden inside the house and could be found in a wall, so many boards up from the floor. Back home, they checked the spot and spied where the boards were loose. Wedging her hand inside, sure enough, she touched paper. The money was hidden near a cistern and above ground well. So the first fortune teller had been right after all, and they found the money. <laughs> like, even the psychic moment is practical. Yeah, shout out right. to them. But also, how vague is that near water? Yeah. Like, that's literally anywhere. Anywhere. Anywhere where a human is alive. It's going to be near water, Reba. Oh, my God. You're right. <laughs> Near water. You're like, okay. Um, great point. Okay, so then Reba gets pregnant, which brings us to <sighs> my oh. favorite line in the book, by the way. <laughs> I uh I challenge you to read it because I I don't want to. Oh no. Now I'm I mean, this is before we get into the, her doctor situation, but just Okay, the, okay, you read that the one. way that she she quotes how she found out she was pregnant or she like takes a home pregnancy test and then she says, I was pregnant deader than a hammer. (laughs) (laughs) She's never, never heard that phrase before. Pregnant deader than a hammer. Deader, You're right. Deader than a hammer. I love it. I've never heard that one either. There was no doubt Um, about it. Oh, that's the the second part. (laughs) I just, yeah. And then we get to uh, her interaction with her doctor. Yes. I think it's time for another dramatic rating. Barry, you're the doctor. Matt, you're Reba. (laughs) Um, All right. I'll be the narrator. At my first appointment, he said to me, Now, Reba, you're 34 years old. If you had an op... This is a science word I don't know how to say. Amniocentesis. If you had an amniocentesis and found out that something was wrong with this baby, would you have an abortion? No. I said instantly. Okay. He said, I'll be your doctor. You wouldn't be my doctor if I had said I was going to have an abortion? I asked. No. He said, I couldn't do that. Okay. I said, I'll be your patient. (laughs) Not, Not everyone would agree with the doctor's point of view or with mine, but they're entitled to their opinion. Kind of like they'd be entitled to a choice. And, uh, and, and, and I just think like, She's definitely entitled to to never have an abortion, of course. Definitely entitled to, I don't know. I, I think doctors medically should should legally care for all women. I don't think a story about how a doctor in Kentucky refused to care for one of his female patients uh, should she need an abortion should be glorified. Um, but she really put it in the book. And you're like, huh, you really needed this in writing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... The thing that made me angriest is that my favorite song from her, my favorite song that I refuse to be destroyed, written by Bobby Gentry. Bobby Gentry said herself, it it was my women's rights anthem. It is literally about a woman who is so poor, her mom makes her into an escort, wink, wink, prostitute, makes her get in the car with a man, and then she fucks so many dudes, she becomes famous and comes back to the shack where her mom and the baby died. And you know Fancy had an abortion. <laughs> Fancy believed in women's reproductive care. I know she did. That is and Reba is out here singing. And, and in the music video, Reba plays Fancy. Where she was like, I was just a one round and one round check and look at me now. And blah, blah. it's like that character had an abortion. I just think, I just think like, and I know someone's gonna leave me a review who's like, 
how dare you? But I think you get the right to choose, choose to keep a baby or choose to not. And I just think it's really weird when someone's adamant that you don't get to. Yeah. You can also choose not to put this in your book. Yeah. It's just, (laughs) also, by the way. That's the pro-choice I am. (laughs) Um, but the doctor's name is Van Hooey Donk. Like, <laughs> we don't have to establish that this man is anti-choice. <laughs> You're right. And then she has the baby again. She is the shade towards Lisa, Narvel's ex-wife. She's basically said that Narvel's previous wife had three C-sections. And then later she says, even though he was a veteran father, Narvel's previous births by appointment didn't quite prepare him for the excitement of natural childbirth. <laughs> Which, like, it's like getting a C-section, I have not had one, but it's not just, like, you, you pass out and it's all good. Like, that's fucking surgery. Oh, yeah, it cutting through, like, your full stomach. It, it's definitely that old school, like, you are less of a woman yeah. if you don't birth the kid yourself yeah. uh, type of thinking. And Reba's using it. That's a that's a sharp little knife. She's just, hey, Lisa, remember when you went to National Enquirer? <laughs> I mean, when she's right, she's right. I got to get it to her. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And then harsh turn. This is trigger warning for, for, for a lot of death. Okay. Hard pivot where there's a devastating, uh, story where Reba is, they're on the road and they've stopped using the tour bus and they've transferred to using private planes and they lease these small private planes to get from gig to gig. On one of the gigs, she's supposed to be in one plane uh, with Narvel and someone else, and they switch planes at the last second for some reason, and her band is on one plane, she's on another. And she's staying after a show to do something, and her band is going to fly ahead to get to the next gig and set up and everything. And three minutes after takeoff, the plane flies directly into a mountain, and every person on the plane dies. And it's eight members of her band plus the pilot. And what I did appreciate is that she has Tom Carter, her ghostwriter, just do a full-on report. So he, they really lay out just everything that went wrong, every single thing that happened, everyone, who they were, their lives, what they meant, like what the night was like, which it was really touching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really hard to read. Yeah, I had no idea about this story. I knew nothing about it. And so when she started to like name the band members, I was like, oh, this is nice to meet everyone. And then it was like, oh my gosh. Like I just did not see I also didn't know about this. No idea. And like really, like just what an absolutely devastating loss. And what Reba and Narvel had to do in those moments, both like as like their friends and their band members, but then also like having to call each and every family member of each and every band member to tell them what happened over and over again. It's just like, what an absolute nightmare. It's just like really devastating. Yeah. Very like specific detail also about like returning remains to the family members, like having people go to the craft site and like collect belongings and like, yeah. Yeah. Body parts. Which is why it was so hard for as soon as that was over, the the next sentence was, before the crash, the band Jim and I had talked about me singing at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. And you're like, what? 
She says, they'd been thrilled for me. And I got to thinking that the Heartbreak Hotel was the world saying that we're checking out, was the band's way of saying, we're not here hurting, we're okay. And then I knew in my heart that if I could have discussed it with them, the band would have told me to go and do it. It was a gut feeling, a sign of their approval. A peaceful feeling swept over me as I went into our sitting room and said, Narvel, I'm gonna do the Oscars. Which is to say nine days after this event, which you're like, and she's like, now not everyone agreed with me. You're like, whoa, nine days, which you're already like, that's kind of intense. What I didn't realize is that that means she hires a new band because she needs a new band. Yeah. And in nine days, she's replaced them. And she says, I rehearsed with the new group and immediately realized how much pressure was on them. They knew that some fans would compare them to the old band. You're like, they died nine days ago. Yeah. Narvel tried to reassure them by pointing out the fans might not be objective, but their attachment that their attachment was sentimental and understandable under the circumstances. We all had to try to do the best job we could. It would be hard for all of us. I was like, I'm not ready to move on in the book, let alone in real life. Yeah, and it again goes back to like the weird moments of defense where like I, I, I can see from a manager perspective that it's like she didn't talk about this much in interviews. So like this is the time to talk about these events. But then it feels like it leads up to a defense of her performing at the Oscars versus like just letting us like live with her, the experience that she went through in a way that then makes it feel icky. It didn't before. Yes, 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 exactly. It, it was like her going into yeah. it to try and give it what it deserved made you re- then realize how crazy it was that nine days later this happened. Because yeah. yeah. I do understand like, she's a singer. This is how she copes with things. Like I, I do, I understand why she would want to sing at the Oscars and like, okay, that is a crazy amount of time, but like even put like it, it yeah, just as this frame of defense that like makes it less defendable. One, yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I want to understand it. I think I can understand it. I know this is a weird thing to say, but if she was just going to sing at the Oscars, you could see how this would be a touching yeah. tribute. But the fact that she has to replace yeah. all of them, rehearse the exact same set with them in order to do it within nine days. Like, girls, sing it a cappella. Let your voice do the whole tribute. And then she's like, a year later, when it came time to renew their contracts, like most people do, constantly all the time, I fired the band. Which, because, you know, because you clearly didn't get who you wanted within the week. And then that made news that she had replaced this band and then fired them all. And she was like, but everyone did that at the time. And you're like, oh, this is this is all weird. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's just like, because we're reading this, I don't know, 30 years later almost, like, you have to fill in the context. Like, maybe people reading this 30 years ago, like, knew all of the context. That was part of the conversation. So, like, these right. felt more like response in the moment. A timely yeah. response. And now it's yes. just like, okay. okay, because I'm filling in the blanks and you are just on the D-line here, <laughs> it just feels very aggressive. No, you're right. You're right. And and in, in this portion, I was like, oh God, like, I don't even know how to finish this. I kind of feel, it was kind of made me feel a little queasy. And then Burt Reynolds comes back. In the oh my God. And Burt Reynolds is back. Incredible Burt Reynolds mm-hmm. reference. <laughs> and in this She's just there. She's back on set with Burt. And what I also love about this section is that in Dolly Parton's book, she outs Burt Reynolds as wearing wigs and heels. 
because he wore a piece and he wore heels um, to look taller. And then in Reba's book, she and she she's couching it in. Wow, what a genius man to have a microphone. Oh yeah, up um um have a microphone hidden in his shirt where someone would read him his lines. Because she was like, why is he speaking so slowly? And she realizes because someone's saying a word, one word at a time, because he refused to memorize his lines. <laughs> Probably because that was when he was in the throes of his drug addiction. Fair. All of that went over my head as something that like, oh, right. If I were doing that, I probably wouldn't want people to know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. I'm like, Reba, what are you doing? I was like, She's no, like, my good pal, Bert. <laughs> You're like, Burt Reynolds, who was obsessed with winning an Oscar and having respect for being an actor. You're letting everyone know that he couldn't memorize his lines. <laughs> And then we go to what Barry was talking about earlier where she she then just starts listing businesses she and Marvel have. So and the first many. one is an aviation company. Yeah. And you're like, you just took us through this plane crash. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, how well is that company doing in the 90s? And unfortunately, you know, the one thing Marvel's good at is insurance. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Oh, my God. This is the long con. <laughs> this is a long con. Oh, you're so right. And then their businesses are like are, are like the Walmart section of Legos. It's a construction company. It's a race car company. It's a restaurant company. It's a plane company. It's just horse like racing. all your— They've got a bunch of horses. Horse uh-huh. um, and, and you're like, okay, we're listing businesses. Then I—, tr- I I uh, uh, she, oh then she talks about a dress she wore that when she was describing it, she was like oh then I oh by the way so she does her album my broken heart for my broken heart yeah that's the one that she did after after the band the plane crash yes so after the band dies she does the album for my broken heart it's her it's kind of this huge huge album and it's really about her band like every single song is sad it was like very emotional to record it sounds very emotional to listen to. Yep. And then she does a duet from that album with Linda Davis in a very low-cut dress. And she writes, like, everyone lost their mind because, again, it's, it's, it's at the CMAs. So, and she's not known as that type of performer. She's not Dolly. And people freak out at her neckline. And I said, I'm going to look this dress up and be disappointed. And I wasn't. <laughs> I was like, ooh! Yes, she did show. the. She showed, she showed all them boobs. And I got to tell you what. I want that dress. It's a pretty great dress. I'm going to find a way to get that dress, and I will post it on my Instagram. Yeah. She also re-wore it recently. She did, but she sewed that shit together. I didn't actually— I was like, well, you can't re-wear it if you're not going to go boobs out again. What's the plan? Right, right. But yeah, I mean, by 2021 standards, that dress is, like, pretty modest. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. But knowing who Reba was— knowing Reba performed in denim blouses— Yeah. When you see that, you do go like, ooh, Reba— I loved it. It's true. She does kind of present herself as like, like at one point she describes how a a fan got thrown out of an autograph line for using that quote four letter word that I don't like, (laughs) which I'm I'm like, what four letter word are we talking about? You're going to have to be more specific. But it's like, she does present herself as this very like almost buttoned up, like don't say anything uncouth around Reba. Or my brother will cut off your horse's tail. (laughs) Will roll up with his knife. Seriously. And then now we're ending, we're, we're towards the end of the book. She wrote this. She said, I stepped onto the airplane 
and saw that Kevin had placed little bows on top of each seat. It was like a big present. He had also reclined the seat so that I could lie down. I slept soundly and peacefully. I always feel that way when God takes over. Mm -hmm. I said, that is the most compelling case I've ever heard to become a Christian. You, one of your planes killed eight of your band members and now you sleep peacefully in a plane because you know God's in control and he'll kill you if he wants and not if you don't. I said, I can't get on a plane without taking 19 Xanax. Right. I was like, <laughs> listen, I will become religious. That genuinely sounds amazing. <laughs> well, she goes on to recount, I, I think it's the same plane ride that that ends up like there's a problem with the landing gear uh, yep. and they have to do an emergency landing. And of course, like, okay, yeah, the right thing to do would be to not, like, fucking panic. But in the moment, she was just like, yeah, if God wants me to die in a fiery plane crash right now, then that's what's meant to happen. It's, Let's do it's this. Like, I, mean, I guess. If that's what you need to tell yourself in order to not, like, jump out the window. But also, like, now you're kind of saying, you know, and you are saying, like, look, God wanted them to die. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want me to die. and And you're like, huh, this is like a really weird way to be ending this book. And then literally the last four sentences of the book are, she, she's actually talking about a fan being mad at her asking for an autograph. Oh yeah. And then she said, but then I did what I've done so many times before and what I'll do indefinitely. I got back on my airplane. I flew home so I could fly out the next day to the next show on the way to the rest of my life. I'm like, we're ending on a plane on ride. you taking multiple flights <laughs> and, and like right before that it, it was this woman like saying do an autograph and she said i'd rather have in-person connections backstage and the woman was like well i kind of want your autograph and like that's how the book ends yeah. yeah while also being like my fans are everything and everything i do for them and i listen to their criticism very seriously and it's like and, what a weird taste to leave in your mouth <laughs> Yeah, just, like, definitely don't put that on the last page. Yeah. <laughs> like, you couldn't have, like, Tom Carter didn't have two more in him. Like, give us, for sorry for this, a smoother landing. Oh. Like, oh. <laughs> I know, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you got to, like, ease us out of this awful last page. Oh, wait. I there is a There is a page before this last plane ride that I would love to talk about. Please, please. Because so much happens in the course of one page. And I literally, I highlighted three different things. There's three different moments in one page. First is this weird moment where Shelby, her son, she's describing this like cute thing that he does where they, when he goes to the bathroom, he says, pee pee mama, pee pee. And like, and then he'll say, she'll say like, good boy, Shelby, when he goes pee. And then she's describing a scene where all of them, Narvel, her, and their son, are all in the bathroom together. And then Narvel walks over to pee. And then Shelby, their son, goes up to him and says, good boy, daddy, good boy. I'm like, this is, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but that is <laughs> fucked. <laughs> just a fully grown man p pissing in front of his toddler. <laughs> and then, like, she's like, this is so cute. He's, like, complimenting his dad. I don't, like, what is that family dynamic? Then in the same page, she describes how they get Shelby, their son, two different dogs, 
that they kill. <laughs> oh my God, we have to talk about this. She kills two In dogs. In the same way. <laughs> In the same way. They both get hit by a car. They both escape and get hit by a car. On the same road. And it's like, why didn't you fucking build a fence after the first one? It's like poor Shelby. And also, what a lesson for Shelby to learn that uh, these are in, these are just dispensable roadkill. Um, <laughs> Truly, an insane series of events. <laughs> I will say, wow, I am laughing so hard. Okay, yeah, wow, you're you're right, you're right. I, I, the first, I, the only thing I'll I'll be in defense of is that. I, th- I think peeing in front of your son's like, it's, but I, th- I bet that's a really cute story to people who aren't mad. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. But it's just not my family. Is, it's not your thing. But then what follows is two dead dogs and then a woman who wants her autograph. And it's <laughs> <Right>. tough. <laughs> it was just like, where do we fit any of these things uh, in this story? Oh, I don't know. We don't need to cut the 50 pages about remodeling the house. We can just put these all on one page here. Like the choices you're making here. The choice is Tom Carter <laughs> slash Narvel, Narvel, who's probably like, listen, I, w- I worked at Prudential. I can write a book. <laughs> um, I-, I will say this. So I also looked up Shelby. Don't look. He's just a guy. I he's did a guy too. living his normal life. I was like, I got to okay. know. Isn't he I a race know. car driver? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because they had a race car company from his birth. Um, okay, Matt, you tell me the most interesting thing you learned about Shelby. Mine is that... <laughs> This will really resonate from anyone who ever lived in Chicago. He got engaged in front of the bean. Ah! Oh, no. (laughs) Which I'm trying to give like a comparison. It's like getting engaged in front of like TRL in Times Square. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, Shelby. (laughs) Shelby's actually a huge fan of Celebrity Book Club. It's been waiting for this episode for months. I mean, that that boy lost two dogs within the first year of his life. It's I think he's trauma. got a lot of trauma to deal with. Yeah. He's got a he's got a lot going on. Um and then so okay, so the book is over, and then there's seven pages of an epilogue that was when I say unbearable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now this was a diary. Absolutely. It was, it was like a word vomit. It was like a list of updates. Mm-hmm. That were just job details. Yeah, absolutely useless. Yeah, and then and then that ends with her saying, everyone is doing well, and I'm looking forward to the next 20 years. Maybe I'll write the sequel to my story at that time. If the next 20 years are anything like the past 20, it should be pretty interesting. You're like, all right. Um, but I am I am happy to report that I when I looked up, looked Reba and Narvel up and then lost my mind that he had the fucking audacity to ever leave that woman. She did not want, she didn't want it to be over. He did. <sighs> There's rumors that it was her friend. Again, I don't like that the woman is younger and blonde and super hot. A n- nice normal lady, but I didn't like, I didn't like the optics. And, uh, and but Reba dates again immediately. I loved yeah. it. Then I read, they broke up. And I said, no, but now- She's dating someone new. His name is Rex. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're very, fucking love very happy that together. she is dating someone named Rex. Yeah. Rex and Reba. I, it's so perfect. Power couple for life. I love. Truly. And and he's an actor. Mm-hmm. And you and we've never heard of him. And she's Reba. And it, I love it. I, I, I wonder if she gave him the hot acting tip uh, from Burt Reynolds. You know, just, just have someone feed you your lines and you'll be great. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> I just think it's amazing. Like, she also released... Another album, like, last year. Yeah. Uh, oh. I think it was an album of remixes, but still it was, like, her 34th 
studio album. A New York Times profile just came out about her a couple of weeks ago, or at the time of this recording, a couple of weeks ago. And I read it and it was like, she was like, I'm just been at home, not doing anything. And then they like list all the shit she's been doing. And it's so much. It's like- Same old Reba. She also was in a in a movie. She's in like a Hallmark movie recently for like Christmas, I think, or something. Also, her most iconic glass ceiling breaking role of the first female Colonel Sanders. That's right. The media. How could I forget about that? The media blitz that followed that as like, we are gender bending. This is groundbreaking. We're breaking the glass ceiling at KFC. This is, That's right. I forgot right, about the that. The last oh. greatest glass ceiling. That, okay. So. We end every podcast seeing if the book passes what I have called the book dull test. <laughs> wow. It has, Chelsea, I love. I know, I know. <laughs> it's so niche. Boo, boo, Chelsea. <laughs> Just in case anyone has not caught up to this, there's something called the Bechdel test. And the Bechdel test is, are there two women in a movie? Do they talk to each other? Is it about anything other than men? It was started about uh, by this feminist. Very cool test. And I bet a bunch of people listening to the podcast just think I have a bad name for my test, which is the book tool <laughs> test, <laughs> um, which has nothing to do with that. Now, the questions are, was the author vulnerable? Did she share her truth? I give it like a, a B minus on that front. Because like it, it does feel yeah. like, yes, there she does open up about like, her marriage or marriages, plural, and these big moments. <laughs> to me, she was vulnerable and shared her truth about very specific things that she decided to be vulnerable and share her truth about that weren't that challenging to share. Mm, yeah. Okay. Great answers. And I'm going to say maybe this is like me believing in Santa Claus, but. I'm going to say she fully lied to us, but it's okay because she's a lot cooler and better and we just don't know and this book was a lie. <laughs> but that's probably, maybe that's a hope of This mine. was Narvel's truth. We know that. This was Narvel's truth. We do know yeah. that. I feel like I need to qualify my uh, our involvement and say like, I fucking love Reba. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like oh, yeah. I've shit on her a little bit in some of her life choices, but like, Reba girl, if you're listening, huge fan. Um, yeah, that's right. We we volleyed some other books to to Matt, and he said no. <laughs> a he lot. said no, 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 no. Said, Fuck these women. He's he was like no, no, uh, no, Reba. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I've been dying to do Reba, and for some reason, no one had wanted to do it with me yet, and. And so we love, we love yeah. Reba. She is still an icon. I've been watching her YouTube interviews and like, she still gives great, funny interviews. Like she's, yeah. 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 Which is, which is again, why I want to believe that this is Narvel's yes. book. Cause I just think she, she would have given us a better book if she hadn't had a husbander. Amen. True, true. Second question. Was the book entertaining? I was entertained only because I read it in the span of 36 hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, you know, would I recommend it? Probably not. You're not really going to learn anything. I was only entertained yeah. because I knew I was going to be coming onto this podcast with you two to talk about it. Otherwise, absolutely not. Not entertaining yeah. at all. I would say it was very hard to read at times. <laughs> and and I certain parts of it were entertaining, but certain parts of it, like I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. Okay, last question. Did reading this book elevate your life in some way? I will say knowing Reba more through this book has elevated my life. 
Also because I have started like listening to her more. I I like honky tonk. So yeah. I, uh, I I like listen to a radio show every week. That's the honky tonk radio girl on WFMU. I love that stuff, but I never hear Reba on that show. And I was like, you know, I'm going to start listening to Reba a little bit more in her like old discography. Uh, so I, I, it has, it has elevated my life. Yes. I, love I think to the that. extent that it's made me think about Reba a little bit more than I ever have in my life. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, I love that. Yeah, you can say no. I also do think that now, um, because you've said multiple times the true fact that I am both hot and bake and uh, am single. I don't know if we got that out there. Um, <laughs> that I am now looking for a husbander. I don't know. <laughs> I think this is probably not Matt. the best example. <laughs> I was going to say, after <laughs> all this. Is, should not be to model your life and your romantic and professional life after Reba. I'm just saying, if anybody wants, if anybody hot and successful slash is an insurance salesman <laughs> who wants to take full control of both my career and love life, would love that. There are husbanders all over Celebrity Book Club, and one out of ten is was a successful person in any way before becoming a husbander. <laughs> they, they, husbander is usually their first job. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> um, okay, okay. I'm gonna say so. I, it would have been somewhat of a big no for me, but there was one quote that I've actually been. Um, I've been looking for this kind of like quote because I've been making this deck of like types of stories I want to tell, and I've been like racking my brain of like, oh, what's the, what, what's, what's this quote I'm looking for? And then I was reading her book and I was like, oh my God, this is it. So it's about music, but it's, it's kind of how I feel about um, TV and movies. She said, my kind of country is the clear, pure, old fashioned kind, emotional and gutsy, also sentimental. The songs tell about real human problems, love and the pain of heartbreak and loss in a way that shows you that the singer is no stranger to pain and is tough enough to suffer and survive. And I was like, oh my God, that's the type of movie, like, you know, listen, Practical Magic, League of Our Own, First Wives Club. Okay, 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 okay. Um, um, but I really loved it and I, it really moved me and I like saved it and like put it in this thing. And um, I would say that's also like my thank you to Reba is that all her music is exactly what she just said. Mm -hmm. Her show is that and it is the thing she stands for, which is the things I'm drawn to, even though I would cover it in Dolly Parton cleavage and sparkle. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I love I love the heart of Reba. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. A single mom who works too hard. I feel like we should hard. all break out into song right now. A like, single mom who it, works it. too hard, who loves hard her Reba. job and never stops. <laughs> that was just offensive oh. on her part. I'm sorry. I was going to say, Barry's making up her own song and Matt is singing <laughs> the theme song, the theme song Reba. to Reba's <laughs> I still have so much to learn about her. That's what I learned I love about it. I Reba. Love it. Um, Thank you guys so much for coming on and doing the, the longest <laughs> podcast recording I've ever done on this podcast. It was worth every minute. Um, every minute. Um, where can everyone find you guys, listen to your podcast, all the handles? Where do, where can they see your thighs on Instagram? Okay, Matt, that one's for you. <laughs> um, my thighs and titties are out on Matt Bellisai, Instagram, Twitter, uh, and then our podcast is Unhappy Hour. Comes out every Tuesday wherever you find your podcast. Mm -hmm. We also have a Twitter, but we don't really use it. And then we have Instagram on at Unhappy Hour. Very simple. And then I'm at Finkleberry Pie. And that's where you can also see Pies yes. and her cute dog. 
Um, thank you guys so much for coming on. And thank you, Reba, for writing this book, but I really hope she gives us a sequel. Agreed. Thank you. Bye. 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 That's all for this week's episode. Now, this was our very last episode with Stitcher. So please come support us over at Patreon. There's no husbanders coming with me. This is all Chelsea Devonjez independent, running this podcast, sans husbander. And you can support us at patreon.com slash Chelsea Devonjez. It's spelled like Patron, but with an E. Patreon.com slash Chelsea Devonjez. You can sign up for all the things there. You can get free tickets to our live show. The live show is at caveat.nyc if you want tickets to that. And everything, as always, is in my Instagram, at Chelsea Vantes. You can find it all posted there, and it's linked in the show notes. And because this is our last episode of Stitcher, I just want to give the biggest thank you ever. First of all, to our executive producer, Daisy Rosario, who found this podcast and gave it a chance and knew everything it could be. And she's such a great friend and wonderful human in this world. And the podcast world is so lucky to have a mind and spirit like hers. And Daisy, thank you so much for putting us on air and making this podcast happen with me from the very beginning. I also want to give a huge shout out to Corinne Wallace. Corinne is the person who's been making every single episode with me. And she has the loveliest spirit. She's so kind. She's so smart. And she would often chat me the funniest, most niche celebrity gossip. Not even sure if you can call it gossip. (laughs) It would be just like the most incredible facts. And I just love her so much. And I feel like we have all grown so close on this podcast. I'm going to miss them terribly. Brandon Nix, who started this podcast but had to move on. I'm going to miss you. And Marcus Hom, our episode engineer, who, oh boy, if I told you the editing snafus that he saved, you, <laughs> your mind would be blown. It'd be, it'd be a long podcast episode. Um, thank you so much, you guys, for, for bringing Celebrity Book Club to life. And thank you to Stefan and everyone else at Stitcher. Wow, I feel like the Oscar music is playing me off, but there's no award. It's just my thank yous. Thank you, Stitcher. Thank you, Daisy. Thank you, Corinne. We'll miss you, and we will see you over at the Patreon. And I'll see you guys there, too.